grateful that Chris gave the uh, welcome. We have had a um, tradition since we were at this in the Spanish ministry of having uh, a Christmas like uh, gathering between uh, right after the service. We'd have like a little uh, refreshments that we would do. Uh, we need to have a tradition over here now, but um, I thought this year might not be the best year to start a tradition. Uh, remember back in the day when the kids would like blow out the candles and then everyone would eat that cake? Like, I don't think we do that anymore. And so I thought I'd try to figure out what, what we do and uh, Lord willing, next Christmas we'll start something, some type of uh, tradition. We've had two uh, great uh, Christmas parties, you could say. Um, the children's ministry had a fantastic uh, Jill and Jennifer and all the others who participated in um, having uh, this Christmas party. We had a, a ton of kids and parents, and it went really, really well. Uh, praise the Lord for that. Also, um, uh, yesterday, the youth had their Christmas party, and uh, another fantastic job. Uh, the Mains, the Yindles, and um, Oberons uh, did a bunch of work, and uh, it was nice. Um, I just had to show up. It was great. Of course, I'm not a young person, but you know, I, I get invited, and so I, well, it's a party. You got to go, right? So uh, praise the Lord for that. Praise the Lord for all those who are involved in ministering in different capacities. Uh, it, it's just fantastic to see how even in, in this time of everything going on, uh, ministry outreach is still happening. People are still investing their lives in the lives of other people, and that's uh, praise the Lord for that. If you would please open your Bibles to Judges. Chapter 19, Judges chapter 19, and we'll be reading from verse 1 all the way to verse 30. Judges chapter 19, if you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Verse 1 says, Now it came about in those days, when there was no king in Israel, that there was a certain Levite staying in the remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, who took a concubine for himself from Bethlehem in Judah. But his concubine played the harlot against him, and she went away from him to her father's house in Bethlehem in Judah, and was there for a period of four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak tenderly to her in order to bring her back, taking with him a servant and a pair of donkeys. So she brought him into the father's house, and when the girl's father saw him, he was glad to meet him. His father-in-law, the girl's father, detained him and remained with him three days so that they ate and drank and lodged there. Now on the fourth day, they got up in the early in the morning, and he prepared to go, and the girl's father said to the son-in-law, Sustain yourself with a piece of bread, and afterward you may go. So both of them sat down and ate and drank together, and the girl's father said to the man, Please be willing to spend the night and... Let your heart be merry. Then the man arose to go, but his father-in-law urged him that he might spend the night there again. On the fifth day, he arose to go early in the morning, and the girl's father said, Please sustain yourself and wait until afternoon. So both of them ate. When the man arose to go along with his concubine and servant, father-in-law, his father-in-law, the girl's father said to him, Behold, now the days has drawn to a close. Please spend the night. Lo, the day is coming to an end. Spend the night here with your uh, your heart may be merry. And tomorrow you may arise early 
for your journey so that you may go home. But the man was not willing to spend the night, so he arose and departed and came to a place opposite of Jebus, that is, Jerusalem. And there were with him a pair of saddled donkeys, his concubine also with him. And when they were near Jebus, the day was almost gone, and the servant said to his master, Please come, and let us turn aside into the city of the Jebusites, and spend the night in it. However, his master said to him, we will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who are not of the sons of Israel, but we will go as far as Gibeah. He said to his servant, Come, let us approach one of these places, and we will spend the night in Gibeah or Ramah. So as they passed along, they went their way, and the sun set on them near Gibeah, which belongs to Benjamin. They turned aside there in order to enter and lodge in Gibeah. When they entered, they sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. Then, behold, an old man was coming out of the field from his work at evening. Now the man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was staying in Gibeah, but a man of the place were Benjamites. And he lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, Where are you going, and where do you come from? And he said, We are passing from Bethlehem in Judah to remote part of the hill country of Ephraim, for I am from there. And I went to Bethlehem in Judah. But I am now going to my house, and no man will take me into his house. Yet there is both straw and fodder for our donkeys, and also bread and wine for me, your maidservant, and the young man who is with your servant. There is no lack of anything. The old man said, Peace to you. Only let me take care of your needs. However, do not spend the night in the open square. So he took him into the house and gave, him, gave the donkey's fodder, and they washed their feet and ate and drank. While they were celebrating, behold, the men of the city, certain worthless fellows, surrounded the house, pounding the door. And they spoke to the owner of the house, the old man, saying, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may have relations with him. Then the man, the owner of the house, went out to them and said to them, No, my fellows, please do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not commit this act of folly. Here is my virgin daughter and his concubine. Please let me bring them out to you. May ravish them and do whatever you wish. But do not commit such an act of folly against this man. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and brought her out to them. And they raped her and abused her all night until morning. Then let her go at the approaching dawn. So as the day began to dawn, the woman came and fell down at the doorway of the man's house where his master was until full daylight. When her master rose in the morning and opened the door of the house and went out to go his way, then behold, his concubine was laying at the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us go. But there was no answer. And he placed her on the donkey, and the man rose and went his, to his home. When he entered his house, he took a knife and laid hold of his concubine and cut her into twelve pieces limb by limb, and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, 
Nothing like this has ever happened or been seen from the day when the sons of Israel came up from the land of Egypt to this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak up. Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we look at this narrative, as it shocks us, as it grosses us out, I pray that the Holy Spirit would work in our minds and our hearts. Father, we know that it's your will that we become more like Christ and less like ourselves, and I pray that we will understand the message of this and apply it to our lives. Father, that we won't just be hearers of the word, but we will be doers. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. You might have uh, come expecting maybe a, a scripture reading from Luke chapter 2, uh, maybe something about Jesus, uh, maybe something about the wise men. Maybe you had a certain expectation of what a Christmas sermon uh, or the Sunday before uh, Christmas should entail, and you're looking at this text, and we're reading it, and you're like, I'm not getting the whole Christmas thing from this text. I'm not seeing how this fits in with the season that we're at. This seems totally off the wall. And what we're in here is this uh, epilogue of uh, Judges, this, this section that kind of describes how Israel was conducting itself. If we remember from chapter 17 and chapter 18, there it was the comment that there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This doing right in their own eyes um, led the tribe of Dan to go and conquer Laish. As they went up to conquer Laish, they, they had a victory over it. But we see from the character of Dan, we see the character of the tribes people, we see how they're acting that even though they have a victory, it doesn't mean that God gave them that victory. God allowed it to happen, but this isn't a God thing, this is a selfish thing that they're doing. And it brings us to the conclusion that just because there is victory on a personal level, like say you have a career change for the better, your net worth is more, whatever it might be that you consider uh, a personal gain, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's of God. Another aspect we could apply is in, in a church. Just because we say necessarily that all the seats here are filled up and we build a balcony and, and we fill that up too, just because we say on that level that we are successful doesn't necessarily mean that God's in that. And, and that's what we see where Dan is, they think that they've got this victory, but, but God's not in that at all. And we can apply that in two different areas of our life, in a person, on a church level. But as we see this historical narrative, we have to start considering how is this written? Uh, what's going on here? Uh, in, a, uh, in, in fiction, uh, the writer sits down and he has a, a point that he is going to get to, right? So in fiction, the, the, the one who is writing, the writer, he, he develops his story or she develops her story to a certain point. And characters act according to the, the will of the writer. In prophecy, in that type of literature, you have uh, God foretelling what's about to happen. And as you see history, it plays out according to the prophecy that God has given. That's how it works. But in a historical narrative, it's a little bit different. It's a combination of certain things, and you could almost say it's like an equation. You have, um, uh, how do you have a, a historical narrative that glorifies God, that honors God? You have to have revelation and, and uh, 
we see Revelation here as being God's word, God's law. Uh, we know from Romans chapter 1 that uh, God has revealed himself. We, we know whether we act upon that or not. God has revealed himself. Uh, we have revelation plus obedience leads to a God-honoring story. Revelation plus obedience leads to a God-honoring story. Revelation plus disobedience equals to a non-God-honoring story. That, that's just what it is. And, and in a certain way, that's where we're at. We do have prophecy, and we know how things are going to end, but right now, as we are living, as we are developing our lives day by day, living each day, uh, we have revelation from God, His Word. Now, it depends on how we are going to live. If we're going to obey, then if we obey, then we're going to have stories like the story of Joshua and Jericho, where he hears the Word of God, he knows what to do, they go and obey it, and what they see is a, a big victory happening in their life. Or we can see stories like in the book of Judges where they had revelation, but rather than obeying it, they decide to disobey, they decide to do whatever is right in their own eyes. They become the judge and jury of what to do. They don't seek counsel. I mean, they had the revelation, but they're not going to go look at it, they're not going to consult it, they're not going to pray to God. They're going to do whatever feels right, whatever is good, whatever their heart motivates them to do, and that's what we see in this text. And so as this historical narrative is developed, we, saw, we see some scenes, and there's five scenes. And what we're going to be looking at is that Christians must submit to God uh, as Lord so as not to become selfish and self-gratifying people. Christians must submit to God's Lordship so as not to become selfish and self-gratifying people. First scene, verses 1 through 9. In scenes, we have characters, and these characters are, are presented here. We see the Levite. And, and this Levite, he's staying in the hill country of Ephraim, and, and he's taken a, a concubine. Uh, we see him as being the, the victim of an infidelity. He is the victim of the infidelity. Not only infidelity, but he's also the victim of being abandoned. She's taken off four months down to her father. She's left him behind. Here, this Levite is the victim. And we start to feel sorry for this man. And what does he do? Well, as the text says, he, he gets his servant and he gets some donkeys and he goes down to find her. And when he finds her, the word says he spoke tenderly to her. Oh, this is, this is tender. Can you imagine this type of betrayal? Can you imagine this type of abandonment in your own life? What would be your reaction? It would not be to go get a servant and two donkeys and go after the person and go find them, and bring them back, speak tenderly to them. No. There would be some type of justice that you would be looking for. You'd be praying to God that God would do something to them. But we see this is what he does. Now, the other character that we see here in this historical narrative is this concubine that's presented. Now, you notice that in this narrative, no names are presented. Because it's giving this, uh, it doesn't want to specify that this is just happening to these people. It's making it very broad in general to be applicable uh, throughout all of Israel and making it applicable even to now. So there's this concubine, and she is, she would be the second wife. Uh, the Levite would have had his wife, but then one day he decided to have a, another woman. This woman lives in their home. Uh, 
he is her husband, but he is not, uh, she is not his wife. She is the concubine. There's a difference in relationship. The, he and his wife make decisions for the home. They don't say, bring the concubine. Let's, let's decide what we're going to eat for Christmas. <laughs> they don't do that. The husband and the wife talk about what's for Christmas and what presents are going to be bought. The concubine just follows in with whatever they're going to do. So she is at a disadvantage here, and, and she is the one that, has, as it says, has played the harlot. Not only has she done that, but she has abandoned her husband. She hasn't been faithful to him. She takes off and goes and stays with her father uh, for four months. Can you imagine this? Now we also have another character is the father, and he is presented as somebody very hospitable, very gracious. He, he, he finds out that this is a son, his son-in-law. He opens his house. He opens his kitchen. He, he serves them. He, he takes care of them. Anything that they need, he's, he's fixing for them. He, he, they're ready to leave. He's like, oh, no, no, no. you got to eat. How are you going to? You can't walk back all those miles. It's about uh, 20 miles. You can't walk back 20 miles like this. You, no, you have to eat. And uh, so he feeds them. Uh, we see this here as um, very interesting because we also see this aspect of a, a time frame that's happening, a, a clock ticking per se. The narration starts off with four months uh, when the Levite finally goes and gets her, but then it slows down to five days. And really in those five days, there's this kind of talking, stay the night, have breakfast. Hey, might as well, you might as well, you've had breakfast, might as well celebrate and have supper, right? I mean, you stayed for breakfast and it keeps on going like this and it slows down until we get to the afternoon of the fifth day. Now, the father-in-law, he recognizes that the sun is setting. But he doesn't understand how dark that night is going to be. He, he doesn't. There's a darkness that's coming. He doesn't know how dark it's going to be. But he warns them and tells them, hey, just, just stay one more night. Then in the morning you can leave. They, he doesn't want to leave. So in this first scene, we see a crisis. And in this crisis, we see the unfaithfulness of the concubine. That's the crisis. That's the problem. How is this conflict uh, resolved? The conflict resolution happens when the Levite decides to go and find her. This is an incredible story. You would hope that the chapter just ended there. Uh, you would almost think, wow, this must be like uh, representing God. Now, don't take it to represent God. You don't see God ever having a concubine. You don't see Christ ever having a concubine. God, uh, Israel is pre presented as uh, God's wife. The church is presented as the bride of Christ. But you don't see a concubine. So don't make this about God here. But you think the story, this is fantastic. This is, I mean, this is what you would use in marriage counseling. Uh, you, you would hope that the chapter just ends there. But it's just the first scene. And we already have in the first scene a darkness coming in. Now, as we look at this, we go into the second scene, which is verses 10 through 15. Here in, in verses 10 through 15, we see the Levite. The Levite is now just a Levite in company. The concubine, who had played a major role in the first scene, now just becomes very uh, laid back. You, you don't see any interaction with her anymore, uh, not until later on. In fact, it's the Levite and his servant that uh, end up talking. And they are trying to determine uh, where to spend the night. We see also that in this 
next scene that a new character or a town gets introduced, and that's Jebus. What, what, what is Jebus? What is that town? Well, it's, it's where Jerusalem would be. It's where the Jebusites live right now and this time. Uh, but it would eventually be Jerusalem. Oh, well, who, is, who are the Jebusites? Well, you remember, you remember the story of uh, Noah. Noah had three sons. One of them was Ham. You remember after the, the flood, the waters recede, Noah comes out, he plants a vineyard, and then he takes the grapes and he makes wine. Somehow, in that making of wine, he ends up drinking and getting drunk. And the story doesn't tell exactly how this happens, but he ends up naked on the ground. And the way the story presents it is that Ham comes and he sees him and it presents a perverse way that he is seeing them, a very perverse sexual way. It doesn't go into any type of details, but it already presents this. And Noah, once he comes to himself and he wakes up, he realizes what has happened, he curses Ham and Ham's descendants. So now as this introduction to this, uh, the Jebusites, there's already a tone that should be coming into our mind. When he says, no, I'm not going to go there, we should be saying, you better not go there. We know about the curse that's happened. We know about the history that's happened there. We said, no, we don't want anything like that. Who would want to stay with such a people? Mm-mm. He is very wise. This Levi is very wise for saying, no, we're going to move on. There's another thing that's brought up here about the Jebusites, and that's the uh, they're not his people. They're, they're different. They're, they're those people. Who are those people? Well, you know, anybody that's not like you, right? They're those people. There's a curse on them because of this weird sexual perversion. And then there's Gibeah. Gibeah is, is his people. Gibeah is, is, is descendants of Benjamin. Gibeah is, is Benjamin who... Jacob loved. You, you remember the story where uh, Joseph says, you know, I'm not going to give you any more food unless you bring Benjamin down. And they go and tell Jacob the story. They tell Israel the story. And what does he say? Oh, go ahead and take Benjamin. No. I'd rather starve than send him down. And he keeps him for himself until finally he lets him go. This is Benjamin. This is the one who Israel loved almost as much as Joseph. They... You think, wow, this is, this is a wise man. Don't go to the heathen Gentiles. Go to the people of God. This, this is a good story. I mean, it goes from the Levite pursuing his concubine, talking tenderly to him. He makes the decision, do I go to the Gentiles? Do I go to the people of God? I'm going to the people of God. This is, I mean, this is what you want to use in counseling. This is what you want to tell people, young people. This is what you have to do. You would hope that the story ends there, but the time frame keeps on going. The narrative slows down now to hours. Hours are passing. The, the sun keeps setting. It hasn't gotten totally dark yet, but it keeps on setting, and they are, there they are, sitting in the plaza by themselves. No one's wanting to take them in. Hours are going by. The sun keeps on lowering. The darkness keeps on infiltrating where they're at. We see that there's this crisis. And the crisis here is that the people are inhospitable. No one will take them in for the night. No one will reach out to them. No one will say, hey, I have a responsibility with them. Now, <laughs> to be honest, 
If I saw somebody in the plaza, I wouldn't take them in either, right? You know, <laughs> we see people out and about, and we don't say, hey, I got, I got an empty garage. You want to come? But this is different. This is, don't, don't try to make it into our culture. This is different. This is, they would have expected people to, to live like this, to be hospitable, to bring people in. No, they're inhospitable. There is no resolution to the crisis here, which means that the crisis is going to intensify. Our next scene seems like a resolution, but it's not. It just intensifies the crisis even more. That moves us into our third scene, which is verses 16 through 21. 16 through 21, we have a new character introduced, which is this, this old man. This old man, he's from Ephraim, but he lives in Gibeah. Gibeah, who later on would be the town from where Saul's from, right? The, the town where the first king of Israel would come from. That Gibeah, he's living there. And he's arriving from the fields as it's getting darker. He comes in and he sees this group of people there, the Levite and his entourage, and he has compassion for them. Somehow he believes it's not safe to stay out in the open square. Now we have to ask ourselves, why is it not safe? I mean, the town would have had a wall around it, would have had a door. Uh, the people in charge would have been sitting at the door and they would have conducted business there. Uh, we see that in Bethlehem, which is a smaller town. Why is it that here in Gibeah, it's unsafe to be in the square? They would have shut the gates. They would have been inside the wall. I mean, it would have been uncomfortable. It had been outside, but there shouldn't be any wild animals being able to get in. They would have not had a bed but they could have just sat there in the plaza and slept outside in the stars, and they should be safe. But why are they not safe? Because they don't realize that the danger is actually inside. They're assuming the danger is out there. They're not considering that the danger is inside with them. They thought the danger is over there with the Jebusites, but the danger was with their own people. The old man hints at a real danger. Now, you're probably thinking, you're listening to this, and you're like, I've heard this before. This seems to parallel something. I, I've kind of heard this story, and you're right. It, it parallels to Genesis chapter 19. In fact, the amount of words used in Genesis 19 telling about the story where, where the three men who come to, to Sodom, and, and Lot takes them in, and how it describes, it, it's almost parallel the amount of uh, words. And the phrases used. So in a very real way, the narrator of Judges is paralleling Genesis 19 to show. Now, you're probably thinking that <laughs> the, the, the writer is, is wrong. There is no way that he could possibly be drawing a parallel between Sodom, the, 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 the city that God destroyed with fire, with, with sulfur, that we, we don't even have it anymore. It could be a parallel to Gibeah, a Benjamite city, a city in the heartland of Israel, a city that, um, that beloved by God. Yeah, there's no way. The, the, the writer is definitely wrong. He made a mistake. How could it be possible that he's drawing a parallel with Sodom? As we see this, the Levite, he, um, he has everything he needs. He wouldn't be a burden. The crisis that we see now in this section is... Um, we would think, we would tend to think that the crisis would be resolved. 
Oh, hot dog, the guy's going to take him in. I don't know what the problem is with Gibeah. Obviously, the man knows, but he's taking him in. The crisis was that they were inhospitable. Now we finally see somebody who's hospitable. The crisis is resolved, but it's really not. It's got complicated because, as we're going to see, the old man is more worried about his own honor than about what's right and wrong. He's more worried about his honor and not being dishonored than he is worried about doing what's right. In this act, he should have said, in this scene, he should have said, leave, run. I'll close the gates behind you. Take off. You'll be safer out there in the dark than you will be in here. But he doesn't do it because he's worried about his own honor. Now, as we look at this, we see in this crisis he doesn't tell him to flee. We see um, verse the fourth scene, which is 22 through 26. The old man, he's acting like a, a good host. He's giving them everything that they need. We see the Levite and their company, they're celebrating, they're enjoying themselves. As it says there in verse 22, they were celebrating. And all of a sudden, now we're introduced to another group of characters, which are these worthless fellows. The idea that they surround the house and they start pounding on the door. And they're demanding that the Levite be brought out. Boy, the parallel is now really close to Genesis chapter 19. You can't imagine, how is this possible that this city in Israel is acting just like Sodom? There must be a mistake that's happening here. I, I, we can't imagine this. The worthless men are asking to be able to have the Levite. The crisis here we see from two different perspectives. For the old man, the crisis is he'll be dishonored if something happens to the Levite. His reputation, they, they would all find out that he brought someone into his home and he wasn't able to keep them safe. So how does he decide to resolve the conflict? How does he dissolve, decide to resolve the crisis? Well, he has a daughter and there's a concubine. It, have them. They don't want it. The crisis is not resolved. Now we see that the Levite is going to take matters into his own hands. Uh, the man, the owner of the house, the old man, says in verse 24, do with him whatever you wish, which uh, a literal translation is uh, do what's the good in your eye, which is going back to that Judges 17, verse 6, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. So now the Levite is going to bring a resolution to the crisis, and he's going to throw his concubine out there to them. And the idea that it expresses in Hebrew is like you're tossing a chicken leg out to dogs. Tosses her out. Shuts the door. And the feeling you get is that he goes back to eating. Goes and goes to sleep. In his mind, the conflict, the crisis has been resolved because he only looks out for himself. Now we understand that his talking tenderly to her, we, we see it through a new lens that it's not that he really loves her, but he loves what she does for him. He's selfish. He's self-gratifying. He lives only for himself and how to advance himself. And in this moment of crisis, the only way to advance himself 
is to throw her out. The fifth scene, we see the Levite. It's verses 27 through 30. But now he's addressed as the master, her master. He opens up the, the door. There she is laying down. He had his raisin brands. He's good to go. Let's get on home. But the text becomes very ambiguous here. And the narrator is doing something very on purpose here. It becomes very ambiguous because it says that she did not respond. Why is she not responding? It could have been that the men raped her and killed her. She died. They would be guilty of breaking two laws of God. Or that the man took her while she was still alive, took her home, and he killed her. There's ambiguous in this text. We don't know who exactly why she died. But he goes and he cuts her off and sends her out. Then we're introduced to another character, which is all of Israel. And what does all of Israel do? <gasps> Can you imagine that they've done this? It almost sounds self-righteous, like we would never do this. Really? Really? The text has been saying that there's no king and everyone's doing what is right in their own eyes. Everyone is living for themselves. But they're like, this has never happened. They're very self-righteous. How does this crisis get resolved? It doesn't get resolved in this chapter. We're going to see in the next two chapters, and it's going to be applicable for how we make decisions in our personal lives uh, for this new year, and we're going to be seeing that over the next uh, two, three Sundays. But we see here that this conflict really doesn't get resolved because what they really need is a king. They really need a king, but they have no king. They take it upon themselves to make decisions. They have no Lord over their life. They have no sovereign who tells them what to do, and they're going to obey it. They decide. And of course, that takes us to Christ. Why did Christ come? Just to, just to be a nice little decoration on our table here so we could tell nice little stories and feel good and open up presents? Is that, that why he came? No. Why did Christ come? Uh, he came to fulfill some purposes. Now, you might be thinking, Christ's coming and the wickedness of here, I don't understand it. I, you know, I really think that Christ, we're mostly good, and we just kind of need this little shove to really goodness, but we're mostly good people. It's not what the Bible presents. If you would jump over to Matthew chapter 5, because somewhere deep inside of you, you're probably thinking, I'm not a Gibeonite. I'm not like them. I've never done anything like that before. You're, you're not from here, from Texas. You don't know us Texans don't do this type of stuff. That's probably what you're thinking. But I think the Bible presents something else. You look there in verse 21. He says, Jesus is talking. He says, you have heard, 521 of Matthew, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. Have you ever been angry with someone? No, don't answer. That's, that's that other church, not here. Shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, 
shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Ah. All of a sudden we realize that Christ presents that we are all Gibeonites. And you might say, no, no, I'm not. I'm really good. Not what Christ presents. We have all sinned. We all have the wrath of God on us. Why did Christ come? Christ came for four reasons. Very quickly, I want to tell you, uh, he came to be a substitute. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ has also come to suffer for our sins. The just for the unjust. He came to be a substitute for us. He came to redeem us. Revelations, uh, Revelation 9, uh, 5, 9, and 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break the seals, for you were slain and purchased uh, for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue, people and nation. He purchased us. So therefore, if you're saved, you're not your own. You don't get to decide. He came to reconcile us. Colossians 1.20 says, Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And he came to be a propitiation, to turn away God's wrath. 1 John 2.2 And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. Why did Christ come? Because we are all Gibeonites. We're all guilty. And through God's grace, he came and sent his son to die for us, to save us. Now what we see in this passage, and I'll finish here really quickly, is God's amazing grace. In Genesis chapter 19, how does the story end? It ends with a town of Sodom and Gomorrah being totally destroyed. No one escapes except Lot and his family. They all die. And you're almost assuming that in Judges, when you're coming here, that this is going to end with, with God just raining down fire and destroying them. But he doesn't. Why? Because he's entered into a covenantal relationship with them. And God will be faithful to his promise, even though we're unfaithful. You might be realizing today that you say, you know what? I've been living for myself. I've been the sovereign in my life. And the good thing is that God is merciful. He doesn't just wipe us out. He gives us opportunities to repent, to turn to Him, to say, I'm no longer going to live for myself. I'm going to live in obedience to God. He is gracious to those who have entered in a covenant relationship with Him. Those who have accepted Jesus Christ as a personal Savior. He says, I give you everlasting life. But for those who don't, all they have is God's wrath. Let's pray. Father, as we look at this, we see that Christians must submit to, to your Lordship so as not to live selfish and self-gratifying lives. Father, I pray now that you will search our hearts and look deep inside and you expose to us where we've been selfish and where we have just been seeking our own gratification. I pray that you would forgive us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.